problem with the church today is that we're not enough like the New Testament church. At least that's what a lot of people say. And with great intentions, there's probably for some a desire to see Christ's churches in their own lives conform to the scriptures more and more, and that's a good thing. For others, perhaps it is a self-righteous deflection that gives them warrant for the neglect of Christ's church sinfully. Whatever the motivation may be, I think there are few in this room that there's few of us who would ultimately argue that that our life together as a church ultimately can't be conformed more and more and more to Scripture. We would all agree with that. And yet when we give ourselves to a plain reading of the New Testament and as we give ourselves to just a plain reading and study of 1 Corinthians, then what we find are things not too unfamiliar, but things too familiar. The Corinthian church was a church with problems. There were factions forming around leaders. There were divisions along socioeconomic lines. Sexual immorality was tolerated. There was confusion about marriage, divorce, and singleness. And there were worship wars in the congregation. Does that sound familiar? It seems that the church's problem today is not that we're too unlike the early church, but that we're more like them than we are willing to admit. The context for the letter that Paul's writing to this church is Corinthian, is Corinth. It's a cosmopolitan trading city. And all throughout this city, what they prized ultimately was strength and, and power. They, they prized achievement and impressive people. That's why if you were to glance down at the bottom of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, 27, he tells them to consider your calling, brothers. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Here we get a glimpse of what it is that this culture really values. And it's these values that have begun to infiltrate the culture of this congregation. That's why the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of chapter 2, concerning their jealousy and strife, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? He says, in all of these ways, you look no different than the world. Even now, as I've been preparing this message, I'm wondering, how is it that the world's values can infiltrate our own church culture? No doubt the well-worn paths of individualism and consumerism are certainly true. And in the spirit of individualism, I convince myself, perhaps, that I ultimately don't belong to anyone above myself. The consumerist spirit in each one of us says, I'm willing to commit and give myself as long as my own perceived needs are being met in any given moment. But if they're not, well, then I'll move on and find some other place or person or thing that will. I think we'd be hard-pressed to say, for instance, at least outwardly, that we are a church that tolerates sexual immorality of the kind that we see perhaps in chapter 5 here in a few weeks. But I wonder if we might, even in our own minds, treat 
that private form of adultery, the kind that fills glowing screens when no one is watching, as a more respectable kind of sin, one deserving infinite tolerance. Have we become worldly in our attitude toward pornography? In our own sex-saturated culture, is it something that we've become numb to over time? I found even in my own heart this last week, I was able to spend time with a number of pastors from all over the world and over the course of a few days, meeting with them and enjoying them and, and singing them. And even then, my heart was drawn toward wanting to be known by those who had greater influence than others, by those who had bigger ministries than others, those who had greater platforms than others. Even as I was preparing this message during my breaks, I'm confronted and convicted by the reality of worldly temptations, even in my own heart as a pastor. Not just to desire those things that the world values, but even to adopt in my own heart spirits that are contrary to the gospel. We could spend plenty of time thinking about it. No doubt each one of us could find something in our own hearts that would be reflective of the world's values instead of the gospel's values. But even so, this church, this first century early church with close proximity to the apostles within a generation of the Lord Jesus Christ was a place where self-promotion was more important than service and self-sacrifice was replaced by self-advancement. And so let's not be fooled by the notion that merely having greater proximity to Christ and the apostles makes you more holy. Their problem is our problem, and our problem was no different than their problem. And the solution to their problem, just as it is ours, is no less than the very apostolic gospel than the apostle Paul is going to reroute them into. And so a question arises. Reports have now reached the Apostle Paul. They even sent a letter to him describing their situation. And, and we might even stop and ask ourselves that if we were in Paul's place, hearing of the things that are going on in this letter, in this church, how would we respond to a church like this? How would I respond to a church like this? Would my heart be given over to exasperation, to frustration? Would I throw up my hands, give up, and go find a better more clean, less messy church, perhaps? Where would you begin? What would you say? Paul's way is surprising, but brilliant. And that's where I want to turn our attention now. I want to begin our public reading of Scripture in Acts 18, the context in which this church was birthed. And then I want to come over and continue our reading in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. So would you stand with me now for the reading of God's holy word, beginning in Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. 
And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, well, then I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And so he drove them out from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, a ruler of the synagogue. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. As you can tell from these opening verses, verses 1 through 9, these words begin to address the church's root problem. Some of you have ridden horses, or maybe you've seen on television horse races, and horses have blinkers on the sides of their eyes that they might be able to look forward and not be distracted or spooked by those things coming to their right and their left. Well, there's a sense in which the Corinthian church had formed blinkers. They had fixed their eyes on the world's values. They had lost sight of the gospel. 
They had lost sight of God's grace to them in Jesus and of the power of the cross. And so the Apostle Paul reminds them. He reminds them of God's grace to them in Jesus. In the past and in the present and in the future. In fact, the shape of this prayer, specifically what we see here beginning in verse 4 down to verse 9, with its past, present, and future tenses, seem to reflect or to shape, reflect the shape of the whole letter. At the beginning of his letter, he's going to refer to how it is that they came to repent and believe in the gospel by God's power. He's going to talk about their present ministry and their gathering together and their life together in Christ. And then at the very end in chapter 15, he's going to point them forward to the future to assure future hope that they have, a resurrection hope. And in these handful of verses, as he not only summarizes the content of his letter, but he finds an entry point into this messy, messed up, divided, sinful, church filled with saints, one big idea controls it. God has called us and gave us everything that we need in Christ. God called us and gave us everything that we need in Christ. Let me aim to persuade you in at least two ways. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that we are called into the fellowship of his son. We're called into the fellowship of his son. And then in verses 4 through 9, we're going to see how we have been given everything in Christ. We have been called into the fellowship of his son, and we have been given everything in Christ. And this is going to form the basis of Paul's appeal to this messy church. And so follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Notice, first of all, that Paul points to himself as being called. He's not coming to them merely as a Christian friend. He's not coming as a church planter or a pastor. He's coming with a next level of authority. He is coming as one who by the will of God was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was sent by Jesus so that his words might be foundational to the life of this church and of every other church that would follow. He is coming no less with the very authority of Christ as he speaks. And as we work our way through the book, we're going to need to keep our eye open at Paul's words and, and at Paul's example because they're going to be crucial to us learning how to live in light of the gospel. And so Paul says, first of all, that he is called. Notice also that he's accompanied in verse 1 by our brother Sosthenes. At the end of chapter 18 in, in Acts, you remember where we left off with Sosthenes, what happened? He was dragged away and beaten for his confession for Christ. And here Paul lets him know Sosthenes is with, with me. He's well. He is persevering. He is still believing. The gospel is true. How encouraging must that be to these saints? To know that this dear brother leaving with Paul is still with him and still walking with the Lord. So Paul is coming to them with an apostolic calling. With apostolic authority. But notice in verse 2, not only was Paul called, the Corinthians were called as well. It says here that they were called to be saints. That idea of being called really means no less than simply becoming a Christian. That to be called is not speaking so much of an imitation, but of a summons. That you are summoned by God. 
And so we issue summons all the time, don't we? If you have children, you know exactly what we're talking about. As you, as you go out to load up your car or your van, you're not inviting your children to join you if they would or if they won't. You are summoning them. Children, come hither. It is time to loadeth the van. You are calling them. It's not optional, and they will obey most of the time. As they get teenagers, into those teenagers' years, that one or two callings might require four or five or ten callings, ten summonings, but they make it eventually. The point here is, though, it is a summons. And in the same way that you and I make summons for, for people to come, in the same way when I let my dog outside and I say, Lucy, come, and she comes, so it is much more with God. That when he summons us, by his grace, according to the gospel, we come. And so it says here that they were called. That God had summoned them. That becoming a Christian is not ultimately our work. It's God's work, and it's God's word in summoning us. Now, this is an important category because the Bible is going to teach at least two different kinds of calling. There's on the one hand an external or a general call that is the call of the gospel made to all men everywhere as the gospel is proclaimed. But then there's another kind of calling, an effectual calling, a calling of the Holy Spirit in a regenerated heart that turns and trusts in Christ. We see, for instance, in Acts chapter 17, an example of that external call Paul says, God calls all men everywhere to repent. And yet we know from our own experience, from the testimony of Scripture, that not all men everywhere repent. That's why there's not merely a general or an external call, but there's also an effectual call. A call that God, by His Holy Spirit, causes to, that He makes effectual, effective for the salvation of His elect. Romans 8.30, those whom God predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And so when the Apostle Paul is, is reminding them that they have been called by God to be saints, he's referring to it in this sense. You were predestinated by the God who knew you and who has called you. And he has not only called you, but that he has justified you. This doctrine of effectual calling, beloved, it is a wonderful doctrine. It is a humbling doctrine, it's an emboldening doctrine, and it is a reassuring doctrine to be called by God, summoned by God. But it's a humbling doctrine because we are reminded, just as this church is, that we do nothing in ourselves to become Christians. We just read in Acts chapter 18, verse 9, God said to Paul, do not be afraid, go on speaking, general call, do not be silent, call all men to repentance. Why? Because I have many in this city who are my people. It's a humbling doctrine to be foreknown by God, to be elected by him according to his grace, such that when we are brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, it is not due to any good thing or bad thing that we have done. It is because of God's free, unmerited, pre-temporal, before the foundations of the world, electing grace. But it's not just a humbling doctrine, it's also an emboldening doctrine. You may remember also in those same words that God spoke to Paul in, 
in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he said, do not be afraid as you go on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? He says, because I am with you. Does that language sound familiar to you? It's the same language that the Lord Jesus Christ, the same promise that he gave to them when he commissioned them to go make disciples of all nations. And lo, I will be with you always. It is an emboldening doctrine to know that it does not ultimately rely on our own wisdom or our strength. It doesn't ultimately rely on our own rhetorical power. It ultimately relies on the grace of God through the power of the Spirit accompanying the faithful preaching of His Word to bring those who are dead in sin to new life in Christ. We can be bold in our proclamation knowing that God does all of the heavy lifting by His Spirit. He says, don't be afraid. I will cause my word to be successful because I have many people in this city. And so it's a humbling doctrine. It's not only a humbling doctrine, but it's an emboldening doctrine. And it's not only an emboldening doctrine, but it is a reassuring doctrine. Because if you are in Christ by faith, as these believers are, then you cannot lose your salvation. To be summoned by God is to come and to never go back. No matter how hard you try, and we may stray and we may fall into sin, and yet God in his discipline, proving himself to be a loving father, will always bring us back. He has called you into the fellowship of his son, and the son doesn't lose anyone whom the father gives him. And so it is a reassuring doctrine to be called, summoned by God through the gospel. Well, this theme of calling serves as almost kind of like a top and a tail, a beginning and an end of this, of this passage. Looking at in verse 9, we see it there, that God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. He reminds them of a couple of things here. He reminds them first at the beginning of verse 9 that God is faithful. All throughout the scriptures, this is how God reveals himself. It's who he proves himself to be. That he's always true to his character. He's true to his promises. He's always true to his words. But then he reminds them of a second thing there in verse 9. Not only of the faithful God, but what it is that this faithful God has called them into. Namely, the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That idea of being in the fellowship of his son is the idea of being joined with Jesus. Imagine how many of you, if you could go back in time and buy stock in Apple, you would. Boy, you'd be sitting pretty today, wouldn't you? Of all of the riches with which you would be enriched if you were just a shareholder in that little virtual piece of fruit. And yet the Apostle Paul says here that we are enriched infinitely more in Christ. The idea of being in the fellowship of his son, of being joined to Jesus, is the idea that we are shareholders in the sonship of Christ. That you and I are co-heirs with Christ. He is the firstborn of creation. All of it belongs to him. And all that belongs to him, he now shares with us because we are in him. All of this is in the Apostle Paul's mind in Ephesians 1 when he says that you and I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not just some heavenly blessings. Not just a few heavenly blessings. With every heavenly blessing. Just as we see here, you are enriched in every way, we'll consider that in just a moment. 
This idea of being joined with Jesus, of being, of sharing in his fellowship courses throughout our passage. And it's seen most notably in the shorthand language of in Christ. You see that back up there in verse 2? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That to be brought into the fellowship of Christ is to be sanctified, is to be saints. That language there all points to the idea of holiness. To be called by God is to be set apart by God for holy use. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart. To be a saint is literally a holy one. And so to be one who is in Christ, sanctified, is one who is set apart in Christ for God's holy use. If you were to go into our into our house and walk into our kitchen, you would find lining the back of our, of our counter different cups, and each one of those cups has a rubber band on it or one of those wristbands. We all put different colored bands on our cups because ain't nobody in my house want one another's germs. That everybody has a cup that has, in a sense, been sanctified for their own use. That is their cup to be used as they please. In the same way, in a much greater way, obviously, the Apostle Paul is saying, you have been set apart. You have been marked by God in Christ, set apart for his holy use, that you would reflect the glory and the character and the message of Christ to the world. This is all what it means to be called into the fellowship of his son, to share in his holiness. That's why he's going to say at the bottom of chapter 1, Verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us not only wisdom from God, but righteousness. Christ is our holiness. And so to be set apart by God, to be called by him, sanctified, to be called a saint, and to not begin to look a little bit more like Christ in the power of his spirit may mean that you're not a Christian. This is what it means positionally to be a Christian is to be set apart for holy use. For God's holy use. To be given a great privilege of belonging to his church. That great privilege to be his people. But notice here. That this glorious privilege doesn't end at the walls of this particular church. No. They have been called to be saints together with all those. Who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you not only have fellowship in Christ, you have, you have been called to have fellowship with all who call on the name of the Lord, which is to say, repent and believe in the gospel, and now have been ushered into a life of worship and praise and enjoyment. And so here, the fellowship of his son is not one that is is quarantined in any particular church. It is one that spans beyond the walls of every particular local church. And that is distinctive of all those who gather in every place and who call upon the name of the Lord. You realize this helps us, it helps this church to combat pride because it gives God glory. As we work through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that this was a church that was a proud church. Even in their exercise of the gifts, it seems as if they thought that they were something special. But we realize that ultimately what makes them special is, is their fellowship in Christ, nothing in and of themselves. And so some of you remember that scene in, in the original Avengers. If you don't, you can just turn off for about 90 seconds. 
But that scene in the original Avengers when Captain America and Iron Man are facing each other down and talking a little bit of trash to one another. And Tony Stark, Iron Man, turns around and he says to Steve Rogers, everything special about you came out of a bottle. He's saying nothing special about you is intrinsic to you. It was all given to you. It didn't belong to you intrinsically. Someone else gave it to you. And so Paul is saying the same thing here. To be called into the fellowship of Christ and to enjoy that with all of the saints in every place is to say what ultimately makes this church special is not anything intrinsic in this church. It is because of what you have been given in Christ. And every true church in every place throughout the ages enjoys that same grace from God. And so who are you to boast as if your church or our church for any reason perhaps enjoys more favor from God than any other true church in the gospel? It's one of the reasons why in our pastoral prayers we want to pray for other churches. Because we recognize that the kingdom of God does not end in these walls but that we have, as the Apostle Paul says, called us to be saints together with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so while we may disagree on a number of secondary or tertiary issues with other brothers and sisters in Christ, they are nevertheless our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the first thing that we think about them and that we hope they think about us is not ultimately what makes us different, though there may be many things. It's ultimately and first of all what makes us the same. It's not what makes our church special. It's what makes our church generic in terms of every other true church in every other place all over the world and throughout the ages that they have been called, that we have been called to be saints in Christ. And so it combats pride, congregational pride, and it ultimately gives God the glory because who are we to boast? He's given us everything that we have in Christ. And that's the focus of verses 4 through 9. We've seen that we were called into the fellowship of his son there in the opening verses, but now he's going to remind this church that since they have been called into the fellowship of his son, they have been given everything in Christ that they lack nothing. And as he does, the Apostle Paul is going to acknowledge God's grace to them, not only in the past, but also in the present. Not only in the present, but also in the future. That's what we're going to see here, verses 4 through 6. We're going to see God's grace in the past. There in verse 7, we're going to see God's grace in the present. And in, verses, in verse 8, we'll see God's grace for the future. Consider each one of these along with me. In verses 4 and 5, he says here that they have been in every way enriched. God is the one that has given them real riches. Specifically, he says in verse 5, riches in all speech and knowledge. As we work our way through the letter, we're going to find that Paul is concerned often with speech and knowledge. But what we're going to see is that the speech and the knowledge of this particular church reflects not only the gospel, but reflects the world. And so Paul is just setting the ball up on a tee that he can take a swing in the rest of the letter. That God has enriched them in every way, specifically in speech and knowledge. But how exactly and when did these gifts come? That's what we see there in verse 6. 
Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Confirmed how? In their conversions. Paul might have perhaps Acts 18 in mind. Not only in the initial proclamation of the gospel, but in the 18 months that he lingered there teaching the word of God and seeing it bear fruit through conversions and and through saints being sanctified and growing in grace together. That when they received the gospel at that very moment, when they were united to Christ, they were enriched They were forgiven. They were made right with God and they were blessed in Christ. And he spent a year and a half teaching and filling them with the word, explaining to them all of the blessings and the benefits of belonging to this new covenant of grace. And so I wonder, even as I was studying here, even as I think about, for instance, with turnover on our staff and and the potential hiring of new staff, as I think about the potential creating of new ministries or the strengthening of old ministries, all of which are good things, I wonder if when we think ultimately about being enriched with the Word of God, when I think about our church being enriched with the Word of God, am I tempted to think, is that all? Is there not... Maybe a little bit more than that. Maybe we need a little bit more of this, a little bit more branding, a little bit more of these kinds of programs, a little bit more of this kind of staffing, all of which may be good things, but am I tempted even in my own heart to diminish the sufficiency of God's word? And so I wonder if sometimes we're tempted to imagine needing something more, something bigger, But when we pause and we think about it for just a moment, we see that what Paul is saying here is absolutely massive. And it's absolutely massive because we're talking about the word of the living God. It is the active and living voice of the creator, the very one who spoke light into existence and then spoke through the gospel, the very glory of the face of Christ into our hearts, giving us new life. It is truth, it is life, it is light, it is knowledge, and it's the means whereby God acts in all of his rescuing and restoring power. And so I wonder, when we think about God giving us his word, do we think God has given us all that we need in his word? Or do we stop and think, after a sermon or a handful of Bible studies, I mean, really, is that all? Are you sure we don't need maybe something else, a little bit more. That was the temptation that this church had fallen into. And their temptation is no different to the temptations that we face today. Brothers and sisters, let me reassure you, all that is needed, all that is needed for the building, gathering, growing, and perseverance of God's church to the end of the ages is found in his word as it is used by his spirit to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Paul is saying to this church, and he's saying to us today, that if we have the word of truth centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all that we need to live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're just investigating Christian things, I would even ask you, what is it that you're looking for? What did you come in here looking for? Perhaps certain kinds of answers, maybe even certain kind of experience. 
But to you, friend, I would say to encounter the saving power of God, to encounter the the riches, to experience the kind of riches that, that are being poured out here, that are being described here, then what you need to engage in above all is the testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. To have fellowship with this apostolic message, the message that the Apostle Paul has given, to have fellowship with the apostles, that is those who wrote this testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ, is to have fellowship with God himself. The very words about his cross. And you might come to look at the cross and the message of of the Son of God becoming a man and dying in the place of sinners, sinners like you. And you might say, that is a crazy, weak, absurd idea. But friend, I would have you consider whether or not God has chosen to shame the wise things of the world with those things that are weak. And that thing which you consider to be so weak, perhaps, The word of the cross is the very power of God by which sinners like us are saved. Oh, friend, for all the other things that you might consider about the things that you see and hear and experience in your time with us, I hope the thing that rises to the top is a clear testimony about who the Lord Jesus Christ is and of the great grace that God holds out to you in him should you be brought by his grace to repent and believe in Christ. It's all available to you should you come, should he summon you. But look at verse 7. He not only refers to their past, that is, that in every way they were enriched, but in verse 7 it says, now, present tense, you are not lacking. Notice that phrase at the beginning of verse 7, so that... It's a consequence of verses 4, 5, and 6. And so if you were to put your finger right there in verse 6 and trace it backwards up to verse 4, you would see that when they were converted, verse 6, they were enriched in every single way, verse 5. And being enriched in every single way, verse 5, is the result, verse 4, of the grace of God. It was undeserved favor. And so it makes sense then that the gifts that he's talking about here in verse 7 somehow relate to God's word and the gospel, the very word by which they were saved. That's why later on in the book, when he speaks to them about their own present tense ministry, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul's going to instruct them on how to use these gifts in a way that serves others through their word ministry, that builds up the church rather than build themselves up. We'll get to that at a later date. But the key point that you need to see in verse 7 is this. That because they've been called by the grace of God into the fellowship of his son, they lack nothing. They lack nothing. God has given them everything that they need in Christ. John Calvin said this, commenting on this passage. He said, the Lord has not merely honored you with the light of the gospel, but has eminently endowed you with all those graces that may be of service to the saints in helping them forward in the way of salvation. You realize how liberating that is. Not have to worry about being impressive in the world but rather being equipped by God. No need for us to seek more impressive things than what God has already given us in his word and in Christ. No need for this church to go seeking for more impressive things. 
Well, for us, no matter how well-equipped we may or may not feel in any given day, beloved, we have been given God's word. And we can trust that when we have that, God, by his spirit, is going to provide us with everything that we need for the work that he's given us as we wait until we see here the revealing of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here Paul shifts his focus to the future. Oh, God's people have a wonderful future. That's what he says here. That same Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 7, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in that day, he will sustain us and those future promises declare to us that we will be raised with Christ. That when he returns in the fullness of his glory, we are going to be with him. That's why when you get to the end of the letter in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is going to reassert and reinforce the reality of a future, physical, tangible, resurrection life. In fact, that was his whole obsession, that he would know nothing but Christ and the power of his resurrection. And he wants this church to know the same thing, of the hope and the power of the resurrection. Not merely spiritually, but a physical future resurrection into a new creation whereby we will see Christ face to face and rule with him forever. That is the future hope. In fact, that's what's in view in that phrase there, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That language of the day echoes Old Testament language for final judgment of the day that the Lord Jesus Christ will appear on a white horse with something like a sword coming out of his mouth, speaking judgment over the nations with his word. And you'll see blood on his robes as he tramples his enemies. It'll be a terrifying day. And how is it then that you and I, knowing ourselves to be sinners, just as we confessed earlier in our gathering, how can we be assured that we will stand in that day how can we know because God in his grace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ verse 8 will sustain us to the end guiltless (laughs) no guilt in life no fear in death beloved our future is secure And it has nothing to do with any amount of righteousness intrinsic to yourself. It has everything to do with the life that you have been given in Christ. He is our righteousness and our hope. And so for all of the ways perhaps that you and I might be like this church to look around at at, and in many ways an imperfect church, Covenant Baptist Church, and all the ways that our hearts might be tempted to, to grumble against one another, to grumble against leaders, or for leaders to grumble against sheep. For all the ways that we might look around and see our many frailties and, and the many ways in which we're ineffective. For all the ways in which that we have been taken out of the world, the world has not yet been sufficiently taken out of us. For all of the ways that we might look around to be tempted to grumble and complain and grow harsh in our spirit, I wonder if we might adopt a similar posture as what we see here by the Lord Jesus Christ. That we look around at the saints, even in spite of perhaps wounds and need for forgiveness, in spite of all the imperfections and failings of your leaders, and you're able to say, even in all of these, I give thanks to God because of the grace of God that was given to this church 
in Christ Jesus. That is not to make illegitimate any concerns or complaints, but it is to say that in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ loves his church. God has bought us with his own blood, Acts 20, that we are precious in his sight. And it is Satan, as we see in the book of Revelation, that makes himself the accuser of the brethren. Notice how different Paul's apostolic heart is for this messy, sinful, divided church. Before I say anything, he says, let me remind you who you are, called into the fellowship of Christ, and let me remind you what you have been given in the past, in the present, and in the future. That truth lets us take those blinders off. It fixes us and our hope on Christ and in turn begins to shape our life together as a church. And so, beloved, I would just ask in our own hearts, as you've considered your own relationship and your walking with the saints in this church or your own hearts toward your leaders or elders, even in our hearts toward the members of this church is what we see here, our first instinct. I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way we have been enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among us, so that we are not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain us to the end, guiltless in that day, because God is faithful. Oh, might the faithfulness of God and the grace of God in Christ be the lenses that we put on by which to think about our church and every other true church in every place, that we would not grow severe toward Christ's bride, but that we would begin as Paul began, because of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opening handful of verses. We thank you for the reminder of your great grace to us in Christ. And we look around at, at our own lives and our own hearts. We look around at our own church and the many ways in which we are far from the ideal that we see in the most glorious parts of the scriptures. And we're reminded of your great love for us in Christ. We're reminded that because we're in Christ, you don't grumble against us. That because we are in Christ, you do not offer to us any reproach. But your throne of grace is open in our time of need. And what we have need for is faithful endurance. God, I thank you for the members of this church. I thank you for your grace in them. I thank you that you have called them to be saints together with all those in every place that have been called into the fellowship of your son. 
I thank you for the way that you have gifted us by your spirit that we might build one another up and run the race well all the way to the end. God, I thank you for the reminder for all the things that we make preeminent in the church that the gospel is above all. That in Christ is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May Christ always be preeminent in this body. Help us to remind one another of it, to love and encourage, even in those times when we need to exhort or rebuke, that we would do those things even tempered by a heart that gives thanks to you, that you have saved us, that you are sanctifying us, and that you will glorify us. We look forward to that day, and we pray it comes soon in Jesus' name. Amen.